Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The effects of climate change globally call for urgent actions. From the fire that ravaged Maui Island in Hawaii in August 2023, to the prolonged drought that is affecting millions of Africans in the Sahel and in the Horn, climate change has proven to be the greatest existential threat to all life on Earth. To achieve the Paris Agreement of 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature limit, countries must cut greenhouse gas emissions by 45% to reach net zero emissions by 2030. This calls then, therefore, for a change of narrative that Africa is a victim of climate change, but rather a key player in solving the climate crisis. In early September 2023, Kenya hosted the first African Climate Summit that attracted policymakers, development banks, philanthropists, and investors who are interested in climate change solutions. The theme of the summit was driving green growth and climate finance solutions for Africa and the world, and generated pledges of $23 billion. However, developed economies had promised to contribute $100 billion annually in climate finance at United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP15, in Copenhagen 14 years ago. A promise, of course, they've not kept. As part of the Nairobi Declaration on Climate Change, African leaders call for a new global financing, architecture, and debt restructuring, among other pleas, to respond to Africa's debt crisis and support African countries in addressing climate change. What is the status of climate change mitigation in the world? What is the status of commitment of donor countries to the Global South? What is the stance of the Global South in addressing this issue, considering that the Global South is home to large forests, rivers, and other key elements that will play an important role in addressing the challenges of climate change? Joining me today to unpack these issues are two experts who attended the Nairobi summit. Ikal Angele, who is an indigenous rights activist in Kenya, and Sarah Maka, Africa Executive Director at One. Welcome, Sarah, and welcome, Ikal, to Into Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you. you attended the summit. You follow this crisis, really, because we should call it a crisis slowly brewing in certain parts of the world. And in other parts of the world, Ika, like your part of the world, you in Turkana, this is a real thing. You don't have to wait for people in Washington, D.C. or in Paris to tell you about climate change and the effect. Where are we? So I think, thank you very much for asking me to join this conversation. For us, when people talk about climate change as a crisis bound to happen, we've been feeling it for the longest time. In fact, the most number of people who are dying out of 
starvation, uh, malnutrition, and other things related to the climate crisis has been going on. It's just that because it is parts of the world that it's not seen as a catastrophe, it is seen as a normal. It's sort of left as something that's just happening. And unless it's in the thousands, as recently seen in this part where it's south in Ethiopia, uh, Somalia, and northern Kenya, then it made the news. And so for us, we've been feeling it and, and we continue to, to suffer the impacts of, of the climate crisis. You say you've been feeling it, Ikal. What exactly are you feeling and what's happening in your part of the world? To corner, just to make it for people, it used to have a big lake. It used to be a thriving community, a thriving region. What has happened? What effects that are so real to you you've just tried to describe here? While it's an arid area, we've always known that it's dry, but we had certain seasons where we had the rains. We are a livestock-keeping community, and so our lifestyle is related to livestock. So while we moved from place to place, it was part of our coping mechanism. But right now, even if you move to dry season grazing areas, you barely get any pasture. And even if you get any pasture, there is no water. And we've seen also now it leads to the conflict amongst communities. So, and so that's something that we are facing it more and more. And it is affecting not only, it's actually leading to the fragmentation. So where we would move as bigger crowds, uh, bigger homesteads, we now have to break apart into smaller groups, pastoral associations, so that at least to reduce the impact of people, you know, moving to one place and not getting pasture. So we are being forced to rethink how we we migrate, where we migrate to, and also what are some of the relations we build with the neighboring communities and countries. So this means it's affecting, it's really changing the way of life for the, your communities. Yes, it is. It's not only changing the way of life, it's changing sort of a sense of the identity, culture, social cultural relations. So it's more than just a livelihood, but also really moving into something that is cultural and, and a sense of identity. You said conflict. What form is that conflict taking? Is this armed conflicts or just right into grazing spaces and other issues? This is one of the regions with one of the highest. And so one of the main things that we're seeing is now the struggle for water and pasture is really pushing people to really arm themselves to be able to, you know, get passage to places where there's water. We've seen in some places like we are seeing now the militarization of, of natural resources. I suppose this also affects the number of internally displaced people. Is that something that is also happening in the region? So one, because it's not termed as internally displaced in that way, because they are from one part of the, either the country or from within the territory and so moving to a different place. So because of that, when you go to a place where normally you would get pasture and now you're not able to get pasture, it creates that tension. So it's not direct displacement, but it is resource displacement, a livelihood displacement that then it leads to intern displaced persons because now they don't know whether to go forward or to go backward because where they've come from, there is nothing to go forward is a conflict zone or a military zone. So it becomes a little bit hard for communities. Because it does, it's not described as IDPs and it's a very peculiar and specific development within the country. So it's not driven by war. It's not the term refugees. What kind of support then do you get in terms of help or support from either the international community or the government of Kenya? Usually the tendency is usually just food relief. So humanitarian relief and humanitarian relief either is our local government or national government. This year, uh, drought was declared a national disaster, national catastrophe. So a few agencies will chip in some money and buy food for communities. But in the end, because then communities can receive the food, but their livelihood itself is really destroyed. So how to balance the humanitarian 
which is an immediate need with the long-term aspects of the people who want to live with dignity and want to support their livelihoods and lives with dignity. So that's usually the challenging part. So as real as it can get, I suppose, as any community can come face to face to grapple these challenges of climate change. Sarah Maka, from where you stand, both in Washington, D.C. and around Africa where you work, what is the state of climate change and what is being done about it? Thank you for that question. I think what's remarkable about the nature of the dialogue of climate change on the continent vis-a-vis the West is climate change is not about temperature on the continent. It's about people, livelihood, feed quality, drought-resistant inputs like seeds, availability of water, those kinds of things. So climate change has a very concrete element that the way the conversation is held and should be held on the continent is very much concrete. So What we saw with the Nairobi Declaration was African countries coming together, speaking with one voice to address an issue that affects African lives across the continent, whether it's the Sahel, whether it's West Africa, whether it's the Horn of Africa, East Africa, and the overlaying and multifaceted nature in which climate change touches. So it's security, it's health, it's economy. It just is very widespread. We don't have the luxury of putting it in a bucket called climate change because it bleeds over everything that we do and who we are. So I think that that's how we're seeing sort of the difference in the conversation and how to address it is why I think the Nairobi, the African Climate Summit was really important as a first step of Africa doing two things. First of all, coming together to speak in one voice because that's often Africa's superpower when we can come together and speak in one voice. And secondly, owning that conversation, driving that conversation and putting our assets on the table to be matched with assets from other places. Obviously, that's the first step. And when that's done, it needs to be cascaded to ECAL's point, to the local governments, to the states, to the countries, to the communities. That's when it starts making a difference. You just have described, Sarah, the importance of Africans coming together, African countries, government. Were they successful in this instance? And from both of you, what were the resolution that came out of these discussions? So were they successful in this instance? I think I would say yes, as a start. We had heads of governments, heads of states from about 30 countries across the world of Africa, about 20 or so. And there was commitment as far as time, there was commitment as far as leadership signaling in the room and being driven by the AU and President Ruto, the Kenyan president, I thought was really remarkable, both the abilities to convene people into that room and to articulate what Africa has to offer. I think very often the conversation with Africa has always revolved around the needs, the victimization, the droughts, the things that are happening that are negative. We're not saying those are not there, but we're saying that there are positive things that Africa has to mitigate climate change, especially that benefits not just Africa, but the rest of the world. So as far as success, I would say yes, but it's only a start. The other thing I'll say is, Also, the leader's recognition of two groups of people that I thought was important, actually three groups of people. In the opening session, there was 
a speech by a member of the indigenous groups, which I think is part of the pinnacle of climate change for the continent. Where will the indigenous group members play? What's their role? Because they have a very strong role. Their knowledge bringing into solutions is sometimes overlooked, but very important. The second group of people were the young people. Again, this is their continent. This is their problem, really. We're passing it on to them to solve. So having them come close in that session and the first opening day, I thought was very important and an important leadership signal. And the third group was the CSO community. It's not enough that the government sit around the table and discuss this because the people must be involved in the CSL community is a proxy for the voices of those who might not be privy to be in those rooms. So all in all, I would say it was a strong start to this conversation, but only a start. That is not always the way this big summit pan out, right? It's often government officials who dominate the discussion. It's good to know that this various group, this very segment of the public space were involved on that platform. From your perspective, Ikal, as an indigenous rights activist in an area that is front and center when it comes to this contingency, what did you take from the summit? I think for me, while Sarah says it was a success, I think that what we had to do in the background was a lot more. This whole summit was private sector-driven, market-driven interest. That was not Africans' agenda. And so what happened two weeks before, the African Union was not privy to a lot of what was going on. And so the efforts of about 800 civil society organizations to come out and call out our own president on this was really, for me, a space that showed the African voices, the everyday farmers, the everyday civil society were coming out and calling out the fact that it was a very Northern-based agenda, that African organizations that are in Africa, but push and non-Africa, basically a global North agenda, were really the ones shaping a lot of this conversation. So for us, it was the fact that it started really low for us and then picked up because we really were able to get over 800 people and institutions coming out and saying, no, we cannot have a private sector driven agenda. So seeing that and then the aftermath with a lot of diplomacy and push back and forth to have indigenous people, to have civil society on the table was very important. And to say that the the in the end, the summit wasn't all bad. Yes, bringing all the, the number of African presidents to damage, considering that the African continent, while not a big polluter, is really the one suffering the issues of loss and damage. And then just the interest on public problems being privatized. For us, those are concerns because we've seen that water issues in the continent is always a public issue, a private solution. The fact that, in fact, at first we were calling it a carbon summit because the focus was really around carbon. And so issues around food systems were not at the center of, of this. And it took a lot of back and forth to really make sure that we are talking around what's going on with the fertilizer situation, what's happening with the GMO crisis and the entrance of GMO into this continent because a lot of the issues were already formed by institutions like McKinsey, who are pushing an external agenda that basically uses Africa as a platform for external and especially a global north, the legitimizing of a global north process. So in the end, did you feel that you push back enough to shift the agenda? Or are you saying in the end, the market-driven approach was still the one that was front and center? I think we pushed back enough to start to open the door for more and more people to come in, but we still have a lot to do and a lot of conversations to have internally 
within the continent to really ask ourselves what is the climate agenda and how do we make the African agenda really front and centered around this. We were also happy around the push for global reforms around the international financial architecture. So some of those things are really good, but then you've got to say that how we do it and what role African governments play in this process. It's good when they come together, but it's also important then how do they not only come together in a summit, but how do they walk the path together instead of when one they're in the summit together and then everybody's signing their own different agreements outside, it really bits the purpose of a collective process, a collective agenda. Sarah, this I presume where you come in as being at the crossroads of what Ikal is describing, the challenges they face on the ground. And you are one which bridges the gap between policymakers and our friends on the ground. What are the challenges there in terms of moving this policy forward in the way that it makes sense to the people who need it most? Yeah, no, that's really good. Something Ikao mentioned is really important to stress, which is African leaders coming together. First and foremost, Africa needs to own this in truth. And when you look at the patterns on the continent for the last, I think, nine months, there has been a incremental move towards ownership, I must admit. From the AU summit in January, when this conversation about global financial architecture took on a different tenure in during the Africa Union Summit to ministers of finance talking about this issue, to other convenings in Nairobi, all the way leading to the African Climate Summit. There is a growth of ownership across the continent with policy leaders. However, Ikal's point about it's not enough to convene and have one voice, but it's in the bilateral moments when it's Zimbabwe facing another Western country or it's South Africa, that the leaders really need to put our heads together to ensure that we're having an African common position that translates to their country's preferred position as well. When there's divergence between what a country wants and what the African continent needs, that's where we have a breakdown in conversation. And the truth of the matter is our continent has 1.4 billion people. That's compared to China that has 1.4 billion people and compared to India that has 1.4 billion people. There is no way a Nigeria with its 200 million people can sit across the table from China and get a fair deal. It tucks itself under the African umbrella to get a fair deal. So the challenge, one challenge is how do we ensure we don't trade off what the continent needs and the power of continental, a common voice with what national needs are. And when we plot our African countries across the continuum, they're all very different in their assets they bring to us climate change fight, in their needs they bring to ensuring that across the board, every single country has a challenge with cost of living, supply chain, the economic picture of each country's heart. Our fiscal room is real tight. That's why the global financial architecture argument is getting a lot of volume. We're putting a lot of fire to that conversation because things are tough economically. So how do we ensure that we don't pitch what a country needs against what the continent needs? That's the first challenge. The second is trust. So there is a trust deficit and it's not an African trust deficit. It's a trust deficit globally between leaders and people. And in the absence of trust, two very important components are communication and transparency. 
So there needs to be a commitment to converse with people and share the tough things. So this is where we are. This is what our country is dealing with. And transparency so that any member of the community can see what the country is doing, can see the negotiations around the table. And this trust element is going to be really important to be reinforced so that we can bring each other along. And I'll say the last thing is just ensuring that just on this global financial architecture, that we have the headroom. Because at the end of the day, when we look at the economic profile of many African countries, unlike how they can do in the West, African countries can't print money. So when the World Bank does not have enough resources coming into the continent, or we have not traded our resources for the highest use of those resources through trade and getting value for money, or we haven't provided domestically, we've not generated enough resources, there is very little a government can do to allay the challenges, whether it's in the humanitarian bids of giving food, as Ikal mentioned, to those indigenous communities as we face the very concrete effect of climate change or future investments for the generations to come. There's very little a country can do with a picture of the fiscal room being so tight. That is why this conversation about the quality and the quantity of finances that African countries can have access to is really important. And what one identified is African countries pay 500% more when we go into the capital market than when we get more concessional funding from multilateral development banks, such as the African Development Bank or the World Bank. Those sources of capital are cheaper. And what cheaper capital means is a country doesn't have to trade off paying its interest rates or paying nurses, paying its interest rates or paying teachers, because that's what many countries are having to do today as we speak. And how do we prevent that from happening? And how do we ensure that we can invest into the future of Africa through these more concessional resources? It's a conversation whose time has come. The injustice and inequity of the financial system and many other systems that bias Africa we need to look at, we need to change, and we need to speak that truth to power because the effect is real. What I appreciate about the moment we're in, the effect is real, not just for Africa, for, for the rest of the world. So we're all in this together, even though it always feels that Africa is on this corner and the rest of the world is here and they can be just fine on their own. Climate change is going to be one of the game changers to say, well, given as we share a common climate, if Africa can address the challenges, the other parts of the world also benefit from our ability to address it. And we can. Natural forestry that absorbs more carbon than the Amazon. We have 17% of the national forestry in the world. Green minerals for all the transitions we need for batteries, electric vehicles. Human capital, 750 million young people becoming to the workforce by 2050. That's innovation. That's something we can deploy. And renewable resources. Because of our location, whether it's solar, it's geothermal, sitting in Kenya using 92% of geothermal energy, or it's wind harnessing power, Africa's got it. The rest of the world can benefit. I hear a lot of challenges there, Sarah. One that I would like you to flesh out a little more, this gap that you talked about, what a country can do at its own national level versus what it can do as a block, as Africa block. What is being done to address that? Because that's, I mean, Ikal talked about earlier, this should not be viewed as a humanitarian issue where Africa is over here and the West is coming to save Africa once again. What you are saying, both of you actually, is Africans 
in Nairobi, this became clear that civil society, indigenous people, and other groups literally pushed back and said, this is our issue. We, we want to be front and center on this. Don't tell us about McKinsey, what so-and-so said. At the same time, Sarah, what you're addressing is also bringing out the issue of the African leadership itself. How do we build that leadership so that it's coherent and it's not about one president shining in New York or elsewhere becoming the dawning of the West, but rather these leaders coming together and delivering for the people? The issue of wars, the issue of drought, the issue of migration, a lot of this stuff, while there's nature, there are also issues that are homemade and they're not helping the people. And the good news is that we have a platform that already exists to tackle this, which is the African Union. And the African Free Trade Continental Area has been set up to harness this very thing we're talking about. As a block, Africa, our trade within ourselves is 14%. And compared to the trade with the Europe, which is about 60%, and the trade with North America, which is about 30%, 30 to 40%. But Africa is trading within itself 14%. To build out that continental free trade area, we need to figure out what is Africa trading? What is Ghana trading with Niger or Niger trading with Nigeria? What are those products? Because at the end of all developmental challenges is where's your resourcing coming from? Do you have enough revenue? Do you have enough money to do the things that you need to do? So the good news is that continental free trade area could be one of the waves that we ride on the continents to harness the continental agreement, the continental consensus that's required through our economic ability. That idea took about eight years, which is a pretty remarkable time between ideation and reality. And one of the things that I love to observe about the continental free trade area is earlier this year, we did a demo. We shipped some things from the continental free trade area, shipped some, I believe there were teas from Kenya to Ghana, and it took six months, six months to ship teas, products between Kenya and Ghana, obviously showing that the system is not quite ready. And they did that demo for that reason to see where it's broken. So there's an honesty about what we're trying to build and how hard it is. And I appreciated that that was made clear. The way that we guard against trading of country preferences for continental preferences is negotiated at those common platforms like the AU summits, what happens in between those AU summits. But there needs to be a commitment and a vision for African leaders to see what is possible. The challenge, quite honestly, is not every African leader has that vision. So you have to work with a coalition of the willing. So who are the three, four, five African leaders that have that vision and can work together? Because most things don't even need the 55 plus members of the continent to agree. You need a starter kit. You need a starter group to agree. And as hard as it is to build something of that magnitude, we don't have any other options. We have a, as it were, a burning platform that if we don't come together united, we will get picked off again as Africa typically gets picked off, whether it's for some geopolitical fight that the world is having and we get caught in the middle. This time it has to be different. This time there has to be an awakening. And I think we should work with the countries that can see this vision and can put their weight behind it to ensure that this becomes a reality. But it'll take time. The debate has been heavily shaped from the North. Um, the global north. Sarah and myself, we are sitting in Washington, D.C. So we are in the greater north. 
Ikal, you are in the global south. Where is the responsibility of the North? Because there is a lot of talk about pledges. The North have pledges X month. And of course, they always remain pledges. And then eventually we have countries like the DRC that say, look, forget it. We're going to auction off our forests for oil exploitation because nobody's really keeping up. You want burden us with the responsibility to save you up North because your cities are flooding and so on. Our cities are flooding too, but we need to feed ourselves. We need to light up our houses and you're telling us we cannot touch this. From your perspective down there in the global south, where is the responsibility of those of us up in the north? One quick area of correction, remember, I actually sit in Abuja, Nigeria. I happen to be here. So Ikal and I both are in the global north. I'm just temporarily with you. I was told that you were in Washington. Okay, great. So... Global South to Global South to Global North. What is the responsibility of the Global North? And how do we do it so that it does not disempower, quote-unquote, the Africans? We're going to start with you, Ikal, then Sarah. I think one of the reasons, so it's very interesting that you asked that question because I know three presidents who say they were not going to come and have Americans lecture them about not exploiting the resources when the West was actually opening up a lot of its resources. So if you look at after Russia, Germany started going back to tapping into into their coal fields. Right now, a lot of the US, actually, if you look at about 60% of the new oil fields in Africa are actually sponsored by the US. So you just look at those are clear statements made by a lot of the, the African residents. And so that's something that we see. However, we've got to then part of this conversation around the climate change conversation has got to be not one group of presidents showing vision, but leaving the others behind. We've got to say, how do we do it? How do you not switch off Nigeria now, but say, what is the pathway from here to there? I think that's a very critical conversation. The DRC, for example, is one of the countries that I keep, I say it's like the site of everything, all this, you know, content stations, because that's the site of carbon credits. That is the site of all the minerals that is needed for the transition. That is the site of child labor. That's the site of poverty. That's the site of conflict, all happening at the same time. And so the leadership is really torn and it's there's got to be, and these are the places where you find a president needing to say, what do I need to do now versus how do I negotiate with the other leaders to then make sure that DRC does not continue to be the site of distress. And so for us, one of the things we're saying is we've talked about these pledges, but I think this is one time that it's either that how do we move beyond the pledges and how does the continental voice actually engage on this pledge? Because Right now, we just throw out the statements. And most times, the leadership doesn't even call out the Global North on the pledges. When we meet them, we don't seem to have enough muscle to call them out. I mean, if you looked at what the U.S. came to give, what, $30 million for 55 countries. And that was an absurd, you know, when you see such statements and such pledges, it almost is an insult. And if you looked at most of the pledges that were made at the African Climate Summit, those were old pledges. They were just restating them. So I think it's a time that we take a stock of what's been said, what are we losing, and then be able to then say, what then from here? Because as you said, the pledges have been going on, nothing is happening. So at what point do we take stock and really then say, what are we negotiating? How are we negotiating? And what are we pushing back on? And perhaps that becomes the new discovery around how then we engage with the global north. And in this case, also 
in this strategy for the critical mineral strategy. Because even as as we talk about a shift from renewable energy, you know, to renewable energy, a lot of it is being generated in the continent to really meet the consumer needs of Europe and others. So let's say like the hydrogen, it's being generated for shipping. It's not for Africans. If you look at North Africa, they are, you know, water stress region, but they're being forced to, or rather they have found themselves negotiated into a space where they are using water to generate energy for export. So I think a time has come that we need to take stock of what really we are doing, what we've been promised and what's not come on the table to better uh, think around our negotiation with the Global North. Sarah, from your perspective? We hear the promises and we hear the empty promises that have been made. There's $100 billion in loss and damage. It's $100 billion for SDRs that Africa has requested. And some have been pledged but not recycled yet. The question I ask often is, for how long will we wait for the pledges to come? Because there isn't, we can't suspend development as a continent and countries because countries have pledged and have yet to fulfill their pledges. So the perspective that we have is, here's where we are today. The pledges have not come in and we have things that we can negotiate for our own development. It's a continent that provides about 4% towards emissions and is getting this disproportionate level of impact for what we didn't create. And we're sitting as sort of, it feels like lame ducks waiting for some pledges to be fulfilled. At some point you say, you know what, let's just take this into our hands. Here are the assets. And that's where the conversation around what assets do we bring to something ECAL said, the negotiating table. What we are bringing to the negotiating table is these are our assets. If you want to use these assets, this is what we require, which are the investments, which are the cost of capital, so that we can deploy this to development. I don't know what countries have developed waiting for others to fulfill something for them. So I think Africa stands at disservice to ourselves if we wait for this pledge. If they come and when they come, it's well and good. But until then, we use our positioning both as the least contributors, the ones with the most resources, to negotiate a better deal for Africa. And that's where the voice, the vision, and the courage of our leaders comes in because civil society is not in the room when that happens. Our governments, our policymakers are. And that's why the conversation between civil society and policymakers on the continent, that conversation cannot be stopped because we need the lines of communication open. And that's what, for me, was heartening about this climate agenda. I wouldn't agree that the agenda for climate wholly came from the West actually, because there's been a buildup from the continent about not positioning Africa as a victim in as much as she is victimized, but not solely as a victim of climate change, but as a continent that can actually bring some change to the space. I don't believe a narrative that with such agency generated outside of Africa. And we have been building that narrative and it's taking hold. And a narrative is just beginning. It doesn't do anything for anyone. But if we channel that back into the assets we can hold for our people, then that's where the power is. And I think this is the start of it. And that heartens me. On that note, it's clear that it's a huge challenge. Herding cats on the African side, in other words, the various countries coming together, 54, trying to get a common agenda. 
rallying everyone from indigenous communities to other communities, to the private sector, civil society, government official. It is also a big challenge because, as we know, there's so often a disconnect between civil society and government in Africa. That's a culture we need to change, where these are different segments of the same space playing different roles. That government, I just spoke to a group of civil society people in Kampala and Kigali. And I think it's important that we also shed that way of thinking that where each portion plays its role, right? These are not enemies, but people are trying to advance. They're all living in the same community. I would like to thank both of you for joining us today on Into Africa to discuss this important issue. Sarah Maka, Executive Director for Africa at One Campaign. I think you call you go by one now, based in Abuja, but joining us today from Washington, DC, and Ikal Angele, indigenous rights activist into Karna, Kenya. Thank you very much. Really appreciate both of you. Thank you so much, Bamba. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. <laughs>